The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Hello and welcome to Root in the Rot on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner, and my guest for this episode is for all episodes in this series is His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Roman Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency, it's great to have you back. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Nice to be back again. Before we dig into uh, Root of the Rot, which hasn't been hasn't seen the light of day since last season, um, would you lead us in a prayer, please? I'd be very happy to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. O God, who makest the minds of the faithful to be of one will, grant to thy people to love that which thou commandest, and desire that which thou dost promise, that so among the changing things of this world, our hearts may be set where true joys are to be found. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. On this episode, we're going to be discussing what His Excellency calls Adjusting to the Revolution II. Uh, I, I thought of it as we were prepping for today's show as the institutionalization of the, of the revolution or simply revolutions forever. And mm-hmm. I think His Excellency are looking, and I are looking at two sides of the same coin. But essentially, that revolution is, is the way of life now. And they're so regular that modern man doesn't even notice it. Um, you know, you, you think about something, let's say, like Facebook, Your Excellency, that, that's really a, a revolution in its own way. It's not necessarily an entirely negative one, but we just take those sorts of things for granted now. And when we look back at this time period, uh, those sorts of things were, would, would change, change the world, change the ground underneath your feet. Mm-hmm. And Indeed. And we're looking today particularly at two countries that we think of as countries, you know, when I say we say modern man, but they're really very young as countries, as nations. I mean, certainly they were peoples and they lived in those areas and that's, they've been around a long time. But the idea of Germany as a country, the idea of Italy as a country, they're actually two of the European countries, we could say, that are younger than the United States, strictly speaking. Yes, really, until the period that we'll be speaking about today, Stephen, Italy, uh, and Germany too for that matter, was simply a geographical entity, a geographical description, but the reality was not there. That's interesting on the, on the, on the face of things, not the Facebook, but just the face of things. But I, the, the reality, I think, for our Catholics, for our audience at Restoration Radio, is actually even more interesting, isn't it? We should, in this, at this, in this presentation, take a look back at the, at the 19th century and to consider, you talk about two sides of the coin, consider the odd paradox of the 19th century in Catholic Europe 
gives us, that on the one hand, you had some great, great, wonderful popes, great teaching popes, firm, truly magnificent and holy popes. You had all, you had saints. You had saints coming out of your ears, and you had uh, you had you had this this the flourishing of religious orders, many missionary and teaching orders, I mean congregations of both men and women religious being established and going throughout, spreading the gospel throughout the whole world. You had the restoration in France, in particular, of the the great Benedictine tradition, Don Guillaume and uh, La Cordaire, and the, and the restoration of the Dominicans. All of this wonderful, all this wonderful growth and development going on. And yet at the same time, we don't even think today of the of the terrible and in the case of, of France the bloody persecutions of the church that took place again and again in just the 19th century and it wasn't that long ago or in in Germany and how that drove so many german catholics over to our shores um and indeed of course italy spain portugal and then finally to to look a little bit at the um at the United States too, uh, so it's all about it's all about the revolution, the means that the revolution used to uh, attempt to eradicate Catholicism from the country, from the culture. I think, um, particularly thinking about the eldest daughter of the Church, about France, you can you can see how we got to where we are today with uh, Charlie Hebdo and all that business. And you can also see, I think, without exaggerating things too much, the the divine chastisement, the hand of God's just anger, particularly against that country, all the terrible wars and all the suffering they went through in the 20th century because of the way they treated the Catholic Church in the in the 19th century and how unfaithful they were to their own to their own duties as as, as children of the Church. So yes, there's a lot of there's a lot of persecution that's going on, a lot of particular targeting, you might say. And and remember, I remind our audience that the reason we're dwelling on this is not for the sake of history, although history is fascinating. We want to talk about it because we want to understand how did we get here? What's the root of the rot? And there are several... Um, Looking at the MO, the, the modus operandi of the enemy, the Masons and the anti-clericals and the, and the atheists in the 20th and the 19th century, we can understand how this all this this revolution came to fruition in the um, in the 20th century. Uh, quite a, really really quite a few things. So, um, well, what country should we start with? Do you think, Stephen? Well, uh, you're saying I I suppose. We should start with France uh, because it's the domino that falls. Uh, France is the uh, the sacrifice that needs to happen in order to unify Prussia, and I suppose that's probably a good place for us to start. Yes, the sacrifice that has to happen in order to unify unify Prussia. That's true. That's politics. Politics entering into things, and it, it will be it will be later on uh, that. Uh, because of politics, the, 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 the Iron Chancellor, the Freemason, bitter enemy of the Church, uh, Bismarck, uh, decides to moderate and at least partially abandon his anti-Catholic uh, program, his, his persecution of the Church, simply because he needs an ally in the Catholics, and the Catholics have organized themselves, and he has to, um, and he has to as they say, back off a little bit. But first of all, indeed, to consider 
uh, France, the, 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 the war that, that you mentioned, the Franco-Prussian War. And then after the Franco-Prussian War, the, uh, the, the rise of, the, of, of a communist regime that lasted for only a, a relatively short amount of time, the Paris Commune, which claimed a number of martyrs, including Monsignor Darboy, the, the Archbishop of, 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 uh, of Paris. Um, then, then this campaign begins, which will carry on from about 1870-71 all the way through to almost the, the eve of, of World War I, it's a campaign to crush Christianity in France. And how are they going to do it? They're going to do it, most of all, by focusing on education. Schools are important. The youth are tomorrow. They're everything. And so there's a slow, steady um, suppression of uh, Catholic life, particularly by um, persecuting the, the secondary schools, finally the primary schools, by driving out the Jesuits, and all of the um, all of the strong apostolic uh, orders, the, the teaching orders in particular, making them uh, making them leave, and um, taking over the education of the youth and making it to be what it is today. That is to say, uh, according to the rules of laicite, that it should be something not only not free or neutral about religion, but something which is essentially anti-religious, uh, anti-Catholic. Uh, then they'll, uh, the French will as well uh, attack the, the, the churches. They'll attack the church and the clergy, uh, seizing the church property and uh, setting up uh, for the, the maintenance of certain churches, at least, that are allowed to continue what they call associations of, of, of worship, whereby um, the government would have the control and that there would be some sort of a board that would be elected or appointed in each place to actually run the temporalities of the property. The property, as I say, that was left to the church after the um, after the confiscation took place, um, and that will be a that that will be another immense point of pressure. That and, the, and, and as I say, the driving away of the uh, of the religious orders. There 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 still exists today in, in France as, as a result of this, this curious idea that French Catholics have, that the priest should not have anything to do with the temporalities of the what we would say the traditional chapel or the traditional church. See, if Catholics get together and they buy or they build for or rent for themselves a, a place in order to have the Holy Mass and the sacraments, well then that's, that's meant to be run still today according to French law by an association, a worship association, they call it, association culturelle of the cult and um, of worship. And the French uh, have a system whereby there's a lay board, and this lay board administers the money, the collection, pays, pays the bills, makes the decisions, and all the rest, whereas the... Um, this the purely that's, that's, spiritual. That's I don't like it all, Your Excellency. I'm sorry. Lay board. I get kind I know. Of, I, don't, I don't like it either, but I was, I was just we'll, we'll, getting... We'll be covering that in trad controversies later this season with the bishops. Ah, okay. so, um, yeah. But uh, for right now, it's just going to make me... Un- <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I was just hearing some news about a uh, traditional chapel in one of the major cities in France, and... Um, these things came up. In effect, the priest has maneuvered at long last and managed to, by, by dint of politics, politicking, true politicking, uh, has been able to get himself elected to the board. 
So because he, <laughs> he wants to say, and he wants all of this. He would like to have all of the say. And he, I think he's got pretty much of a slate elected now that will that will follow him. But imagine having to do all of that. Well, that's this this uh, lay control is is one aspect of this laicite, and uh, it's a this is a um, this is a, a heritage of this era in uh, in French life. So. So then, eventually, you're, you're at the, now. Finally, you're at the, um, the the visual, the eve of World War One, almost the, almost or during actually the reign of Pius the Tenth, and you have the Concordat broken, all the religious orders driven out of France, all the property seized, and the the church and the state truly at uh, at loggerheads. But but under Pius the Tenth, at least the Catholic Church does maintain her liberty. Whereas in any other sort of an arrangement, uh, she is, as she will be, as we'll see her to be, especially in Spain, uh, compromised terribly because in the Iberian Peninsula, the government, there are concordats that are still in effect, and then the government during this era has to approve of the bishops. So who will the government approve of as bishops if not those who have liberal ideas, Freemasonic ideas? And you'll, you'll see that, you'll see that throughout. Uh, not only uh, if we move more into um, Spain or talk about uh, Germany or Austria, you'll see that uh, far more so than in France, they put the emphasis not only on schools, suppressing the schools and the religious teaching orders, they put the emphasis as well upon seminaries. With Josephism in Austria, for a long time now, already since the so-called Enlightenment, you have the um, uh, they have the control of the seminaries, the approval of the of, of the seminary professors, uh, uh, the approval of the courses, the approval of the textbooks, and the Germans, being far more methodical than the French, uh, had it all down to a fine fine art, and they they wanted to produce their kind of priest. The Portuguese took it to the other extreme; they simply shut all the seminaries down for a number of years, until finally somebody said, wait a minute, we don't have any priests left. The priests are all dying out. And the people are really starting to object now. So we'll open up some seminaries, but we'll, we'll approve the textbooks, we'll approve the professors, the teachers, we'll approve the syllabus, and uh, it's not going to be the syllabus of errors either. And, and uh, that, that way we can, we can um, continue for ourselves this revolution, while at the same time, and this is the genius of it uh, in all these countries in Europe, seeming to give uh, permission, nevertheless, uh, on the other hand, it's, a, uh, it's, it's an immense persecution. Because of this uh, immense persecution, uh, terrible, terrible damage was done. It was done to souls. It was done to the fabric of Christian society. It was done to the priesthood. It was done to the church. Uh, so much so that having looked at this era with all those laws and all those persecutions, no wonder we ended up where we did in the 1960s. It's interesting you, you mentioned this, that law of 1901, uh, Your Excellency. As I was doing my preparation for the show, I came to this sort of horrid realization of uh, the connection I have with this law. Uh, as a non-EU uh, citizen, the best uh, frame that I could use to start my small business here in France was one of those associations. And as yeah. I was drawing up the papers with my attorney, I was shocked by the construct of the bylaws. They are such mm -hmm. that it's basically a republic. It's a little republic, which is in stark contrast to all of my American companies, which are corporations uh -huh. which are very monarchical. There's a boss, mm -hmm. and then it, it, he determines everything else. 
Well, if you look at these, I had to bring on uh, a partner uh, because it was impossible to, um, you basically can't incorporate one of these by yourself. You have mm-hmm. to have a partner and then everything has to be voted on. And we sort of laughed because this is a, someone, one of my employees who works for me, we sort of laughed like, well, I don't care about any of this. They said, I know, but the law requires that, uh, that I have someone else because, you know, you know, God forbid that you start something on your own. So there's not just a religious persecution here. There's a brainwashing of people that there's no such thing as hierarchy. Everything needs to be voted on. What color are the drapes going to be, et cetera. Um, and, and no recognition of, of the absurdity of this, no parsing of well, what's relevant for us to vote on. What's not relevant? Why should we even vote? You know, what's the point of voting? And it's even down at this granular level that when you change a law, you're not just affecting the religious part of society, you're affecting the fabric of how society runs. And it was just unbelievable to me how far the revolution, so it was a revelation for me just in in my normal business practice that they even have to attack how you do business. That's that's very interesting. That certainly is an interesting point. Uh, and remember a point that we made earlier in the show with Marsilio Padua and people like that, uh, still, in the, still in the Middle Ages, high Middle Ages, actually. Remember that all this talk about democracy, what does it boil down to? It boils down to a dictatorship, and a dictatorship of, of the few against the many. And so you'll see this, you'll see this going on then in France. And it's interesting, isn't it, Stephen? In my preparation for the show, I did a little... I did a little reading about um, Pope Leo XIII, who was another, obviously, a, a terrifically bright light going on in in the darkness of these terrible persecutions in Italy and uh, and and throughout formerly Catholic Europe. How, but but it's but Leo XIII is worth talking about for a moment. Talk about democracy. His he wrote so many uh, and so so many magisterial, truly teaching encyclicals. Immortalia Dei is is to is to lay out the principles of of democracy, talking about government itself, what is acceptable, what's not, what what is falsehood, what is true. He he lays out from a teaching point of view the, the truth here, but um, the the governments, the Masonic governments of Europe, will simply lay claim to titles and to ideas, and they will use them to destroy any hint of true liberty for a Holy Mother Church, and the true liberty, that, that, which is the only right that we possess before God, which is the right to, to obey Him. So that's going on at the same time, and um, while all this, all this persecution is going on, and thus, on the part of, of Catholics, there's a terrific uh, resistance in, in France, and perhaps a stronger and certainly more unified resistance in, in Germany. Uh, but the, um, I think the effect, talk about the long-term lasting effects of the revolution, especially in France, were such that the Pope desired that Catholics should be able to be, this is a phrase that um, the famous Catholic historian Monsignor Philip Hughes, the Englishman, uses, but at the same time, both a Catholic and a Republican. Now, he's not referring to the Republican Party <laughs> in the United States of America, although I know quite a few people who 
uh, think that they're Catholic, and they're truly devoutly believing Republicans. But I kind of wonder about that. But that would be for another show and for another time. Or but maybe idea for another of, part of uh, maybe for another part of Cincinnati as well, Your you know, that's entirely possible. The Republican Party at prayer, but don't get me started. <laughs> um, but uh, the, uh, the, 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 the actual effect of, his, uh, of the real politic of, 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 of the carrying out of his teaching was to encourage Catholics to become involved in government. He laid down the guidelines and the principles. But it was finally, I would maintain, uh, a disastrous adjustment. If you tell Catholics you can be at the same time a Republican, a follower of the Republic, with all that that means, and a Catholic, you put them in, into this incredible quandary. Uh, and eventually, you're going to end up in the streets with Je suis Charlie or something like that. You can't, how can you wed the revolution, which is the Republic, and the Republic is the revolution, to Catholicism? I, I can't see that. And I see, the, on the other hand, on the contrary, I see the terrible effects of, of just this kind of an idea. Um, of course, you see that with many, if trying to understand how do we get to where we got, many of the modern popes, uh, with their uh, very, very clear, very, very Catholic teaching, on the one hand, were weakened by a, a, a practical uh, diplomacy and a practical policy that um, tended to favor the revolution, that favored the Republicans. And um, it is the Republicans, finally, from our vantage point in 2015, it's the Republicans who won the day. Well, and Your Excellency, it comes probably from a Catholic, uh, that I suppose that desire to reconcile, it comes from a Catholic notion within an ordered universe. Within an ordered universe, there shouldn't be a conflict between the church and the state. They should be of one exactly. mind oriented towards God. And so when a yes. Catholic is confronted with this contradiction, I have the church and the state seems to be in conflict with it, there's this, this sort of contradiction that's presented. And so some people live with that contradiction and try to keep those, those contradictions in front of them and say, I won't accept this, this is not right. And some people that have that irresistible gravity towards trying to make both of those work together because that's what they're meant to do, that's what's ordered properly, and... I see expressed what you're speaking about, at least here in France, uh, when I see a tricolor flag with the sacred heart in the middle, which is a phenomenon you might see on the Chartres pilgrimage <laughs> or among some of these SSPS trads. And it is, to me, chocon. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, the first time I, I explained this to somebody and I said, how is this possible? Now, within our chapel, um, at uh, you know, it's run by Father Legault and we don't have no one, no one has sentiments towards this flag, but I was, ex I was told that there are some young SSPX people who are very, very staunch on this idea of, and you're going to see, I'm expressing this sort of surprise. Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit more why the Sacred Heart on the tricolor, you know, a horrible, disgusting um, flag is something that uh, is just unacceptable. Well, I, I, first of all, let's say, why would they want to do that? Why would they want to, in their own symbolic way at this late date, attempt to marry uh, the Sacred Heart, the King of Kings, to the Revolution? Well, because the Sacred Heart uh, asked 
the great French king, Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King, if he and called him my my dearly beloved son, if he would wouldn't please agree to put on his drapeau, on his on his flag, and on his arms his Sacred Heart, and to consecrate his country to the Sacred Heart, and if he would do so. Our Lord promised every temporal as well as spiritual blessing to the king and to his army and to his nation. And the king did not. He refused to for one reason or another. Then, of course, 100 years later, 100 years later, then comes the revolution and the execution of the descendant of Louis XIV, who is now, who is now guillotined revolution. And I suppose then this idea of putting the, the sacred heart in the middle of the French tricolor is an attempt to to make up for lost time and, to, and but but the conditions are such that um you cannot you can never have the sacred heart of Jesus reigning as king over the republic the very the very idea is absolutely ludicrous and would indeed be against all of the magisterial teaching of a great pope like uh, Leo the 13th no um the, the 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 real republic is the, is the republic which which um, is not satisfied with proclaiming freedom of religion, such as, as we'll see maybe in this show today, uh, our American, Irish-American hierarchy wanted, and they very loudly proclaimed that, like Ireland and others like Hecker. No, it's, 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 it's one step a little bit further along the, the road of true or real republicanism, which is freedom from religion. We don't want your religion. We don't want that in our face. We don't want that in our lives. Take that away. And indeed, all the current events uh, in, in, in France these days, I think, justify the truth of just this kind of an analysis. So we're talking today about uh, uh, adjusting to the revolution, and there are different ways in which that was done, or attempted to be done, and uh, the revolutionaries have won. They won. And all the all the great teaching of Louis of, of excuse me of Leo the Thirteenth, in effect, was in vain. Of course, obviously, it taught the whole church, but not just the French. But it, it served no practical purpose, partly because the French Catholics were disunited and were fighting amongst themselves, whereas the Germans had a had a far greater sense of a Catholic unity. But partly because you can't mix oil and water, you can't mix the revolution and the royalty of Jesus Christ. You simply can't. And that's 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 how we got to the rot, Stephen. That 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 we are that we are looking at, kind of holding our noses and looking at in, in this in this series. Well, Eric, since you, you you made this point about oil and water, and I suppose even when you do try to furiously mix oil and water, over time they're just going to separate again because Indeed. they're they're just confining themselves to the natural law. When I think about the other thirteenth, as you say, it's always been my notion. Uh, and it's been confirmed by clergy telling me that, that Leo XIII was great for words, not so great for action. Well, yes and no. Remember, uh, he's the one who wrote so many, be- I mean, really beautiful and most practical rosary encyclicals. And he's the one, talk about the modern world and Facebook and the rest of it, he's the one who organized, it seems incredible to us today, that there should be a true, quote-unquote, collegial consecration of the world by the bishops of the of all the bishops of the church united to the sacred heart of Jesus and it was organized in about a month's time without any of the communication means or social media which we enjoy shall we say today so he was on the one hand for these things of course highly highly practical but he was otherwise he was a true intellectual 
uh, and he was he was a dispassionate man. Uh, they, they said that he spent ten hours a day working at his desk, and he expected that everybody else would spend ten hours a day working in just the same way. But the the practical politics of of, of Leo the Thirteenth. Uh, went up and down, and sometimes were one way, and sometimes were another. Both as regards the uh, <clears throat> the Italian question, what to do with the House of Savoy, and the Masonic takeover of 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 the Papal States, or what to do about Bismarck in Germany, or indeed what to do about France. And in that sense, I think it's always um, it's never a good idea to generalize or generalize too much, but I will generalize a little bit to say that the modern popes, because they're truly popes on the one hand, have this supremely simple, because true and clear, lucid teaching style in their encyclicals. They really are, they really are letters of instruction to the church. But diplomatic efforts, the people appointed, the, uh, the 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 guidelines uh, that that are that are finally drawn up in the practical order are almost always disastrous, and you see it with uh, Leo the Thirteenth. You see it with Pius the Eleventh too. These were the great popes who set us up for the great disaster of the changes. In effect, um, let me tell you an anecdote about about the uh, about the death of Leo Thirteenth. after all that he did, I mean, all these encyclicals that he wrote and all the instructions that he issued and all the rest of it, he's dying. And it's in 1903 and the laws of association and, it, and, that, and things are at a total impasse in uh, the relationship between the, the, the Pope and, uh, and the Masons in France. And some French cardinal comes to see him on his deathbed and says, Holy Father, to try to console him, says, Holy Father, you know, the majority of the, of, of the French really still are Catholic, and they really do love the Church. And he said in response, but they are not the masters. And they allow these men, the masters, to run France. And that's how he summed up the situation. I suppose he finally had his eyes opened to that at the very end. But what people remembered in France was the push, the push to, uh, to marry the revolution with, uh, with uh, the, the social royalty, with, with, with the Catholic Church. And, that, and that's the impossible part. And we've, we've covered that ground in, in other episodes, in other seasons, actually, but it, it never hurts to come back to that. No, no, indeed. No. Where would you like to turn your eyes now? Shall we, shall we go north to Germany or, or, or south to, to Italy? Well, now since we're in Italy already with, with the Pope on a deathbed, uh, let's talk about um, his predecessor, uh, the glorious Pius IX, who is of an entirely different personality. Yeah, Hughes described him as a, it describes his bonhomie. Uh, he always had a pleasantry and a joke, and he was very down to earth. And uh, uh, and but on the other hand, he was truly the Pope King, and he was terrible sometimes in his rage. And he and he knew exactly what needed to be done, and he did it. So he calls the Vatican Council, and the Vatican Council uh, is a great triumph because in the midst of all of this. All of this um, the persecution, all the difficulties in the post or the middle of the revolution, in the middle of the, uh, of the 19th century, he assembles the bishops of the whole world, and they issue several degrees of Vatican I, and, um, and indeed the papal infallibility itself is proclaimed. That was as in-your-face 
to the revolution as you could possibly consider it. Uh, the idea of the mere idea of papal infallibility was unbearable. Bishop Samuel says unbearable to the liberals and to the Freemasons. So that's that, and of course he's the Pope of the Immaculate Conception. Two of the great, great achievements of this great man, who had his eyes opened as well to the reality of the revolution, and he saw by his own by his own near escape with his life from Rome uh, in the early stages of the 1848 revolution, that they are incompatible. You might say that he, he learned his lesson the hard way, Pius IX did, but he, but he learned his lesson. Now, um, the, the great tragedy of the suspension of Vatican I is that they, and there, there, was, there was no choice because of, of, the, of the Masonic takeover. It had to be suspended, but they were unable to discuss and to vote on uh, the decree, a schema concerning the Catholic Church. Had Orthodox Catholicism prevailed, which of course it would have, had, had such a decree been issued, then that would have given the enemy infiltrating the Church uh, pause. That would have made it much more difficult for them to infiltrate and to um, insert their false teaching into this false council of Vatican II, but there was nothing to be done, but so it's a tragedy. So this is another root of the rot. This is another big old root, because uh, the French, the Franco-Prussian War, then the, the, the Emperor uh, Napoleon III withdraws his troops. Uh, it's the opportunity for Garibaldi and the House of Savoy to move in. They, they move in. The Pope becomes a prisoner of the Vatican. The Vatican Council is suspended. The doctrine on the, doctrine on the Church is never clearly, uh, is never clearly stated by this Council. And, and then as a result of that, the modernists feel that their way is clear for them to invade the Church and to promote a false teaching by means of a false Council of Vatican II. So you see how the, um, how the events line up, sort of one after another. In, in the meantime, in the, in the far more practical order, because the Germans are nothing if not practical-minded, you, uh, you have the Freemason uh, Bismarck, who's creating this new nation of, uh, of Prussia and, and absorbing as, as much of Germany as he can manage to do. And he wants to unify his, this new Prussian nation by giving it uh, a religion that will unite Catholics and Protestants together. And so, therefore, he's going to um, he's going to appeal on the Catholic side to the old Catholic movement. You remember that the old Catholics you come across that term sometimes in traditional Catholic circles, but the the old Catholics were those who refused to accept the dogma uh, of papal infallibility, and who wanted to see Protestantizing type changes in Catholicism, and who were modernists when it came to sacred scripture and to dogmatic theology in general. And they go under the curious title of Old Catholics for some reason. Well, he, he, he looked to the old Catholic movement. He wanted to foster that. He wanted to create a national church and eventually, in this national church, unite the Lutherans, the Protestants, together with the Catholics. That's what he was up to in so many of the attacks that he made. And, and, and of course, it was ham-fisted. It was very brutal. Uh, but that, 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 that's exactly the goal that he had in mind all the way through. And it, it was, and sometimes priests were actually taken away and arrested. arrested. It was, the whole thing was done with great brutality. Hundreds of districts were left, it was a bit like Mexico, during the time of Mexico's persecution, were left without a mass or even the sacraments for the dying. Very, very sad and a long protracted conflict and 
Leo the Thirteenth, you might say, he never lost his cool. Maybe he was a little bit too dispassionate. Uh, but at some point, at some point, because the German Catholics united together and they resisted, and bishops went to prison, and priests went to prison and went off into exile and the rest, at, at some point, then um, Bismarck comes to realize, gee, I've got other fish to fry. Now, uh, the socialist movement is, is, is arising in Germany and, and gathering great strength. And finally, Bismarck is forced to admit his defeat in his attempt to destroy the Catholic Church and impose a new religion, and um, actually to go to Leo XIII and the Catholic Church to ask for, um, in exchange for, for, uh, for modification of his program, his persecutions, to ask for the Catholic support against the socialists because now the socialists are his real problem. He's got to put his, his dream of, uh, of uh, this new Prussian religion sort of on, on hold. So it becomes sort of a, sort of a political thing for him. And, uh, and as a result of that, the church then does indeed, does indeed survive. But what a, what, what a viewpoint from Europe, Stephen, to look at what went on in the, in the, in the, um, in the, um, in the 19th century, my goodness, to consider that all that was going on, and yet at the same time, these countries sending out missionaries to, to uh, Oceania, to, uh, to, to Africa, to South America, and it's a wonderful, vibrant life of the Church, because the, the blood of the martyrs truly is the seed of the Church. Um, do you remember, Stephen, the, um, that part of the Fatima message, how, how, or the Fatima secret, actually, how... Uh, Portugal will always keep the doctrine of the faith. I was thinking about that mm-hmm. in in connection with um, uh, of, of this 19th century history, how with the uh, the appointment of 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 philo masonic, if not actually fellow masons, at least philo masonic uh, candidates to the episcopacy in, in in Portugal, with the closing down of of the seminary. For uh, seminaries for so many years and all the other persecution, probably that would have been a remarkable thing at that time. That 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 it should have happened. That 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 somebody at least I think that's the idea that somebody at least would keep the doctrine of the faith in a country like Portugal, where everything and I mean everything had been done to destroy the Catholic faith. And then you know there's the, the the request, the very simple request. You might say that God saw that it could be done in a month by under Leo the Thirteenth, the consecration of the world to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And so just a few years later he asked for the twin consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Um well, twenty, thirty years later. But then somehow that that's not possible and that's not political and it and it never happens. It can never be done. So that's uh that, that, that's yet another of the great tragedies, and uh, we're tracing here too some of some of the root of the rot. Um, well, I think too, Your Excellency, this is one of those uh, things that uh, knowledge of history or knowing the root of the rot um, can prove to be a, a test for your patience. <laughs> because <laughs> if you're around these things, so for example, you're in Lyon. And one of the metro stops in Lyon, which is in France, is Garibaldi. Lyon's oh, a very yeah, yeah. Italian-influenced city. And, and, you know, you're on the metro, and you look up, and all of a sudden you see this horrible name of this horrible man. And you think <laughs> to yourself, I want to get really irritated right now, but uh, everyone around me would wonder, you know, what's this man getting upset about? We're on the subway. Um, or uh, right. I, was in, I, was in, I was in Rome a couple weeks ago, and I was, I was there with some friends, and they were asking about a couple things, which... 
which I take for granted, but I realize the symbolism is lost on a lot of people. And I, I wanted your, your point of view on two of them. One was, uh, and this is the result of a concordat. We have uh, the, the resolution that, that Mussolini provided, you could say, quote unquote, resolution. As soon as that was signed, the concordat, he bulldozed the Via della Conciliazione, um, which was never how St. Peter's was supposed to be viewed. And it was a sign of who the new Boston town was. And oh, the yeah. Victor Emmanuel monument, the, 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 the wedding cake, you know, wedding monstrosity cake, yeah. uh, of trying to say who the new God in town was or who the new Pope. And both of these are defying reality. And but they're there now. Tourists take pictures. They have no idea. Here's this, you know, this new mon, the newest monument in Rome, you could say. And it's mm -hmm. uh, dates from the late 1880s, I think, um, yes. trying to enshrine a fake reality, trying to say something, you know, here's the father of the nation, quote unquote, as if Italy as a nation has existed for, for that long. Oh, you're really standing in where the papal states were. And then the bulldozing, uh, and you could say gentrification, because all those people's homes that got bulldozed didn't get nice new apartments in the city. They got no, kicked out no. of town. And yeah. you see both of these things, and they're related directly to how did the Italian king treat the Pope, the Pope whose lands he had stolen. And yes. uh, you can't, I suppose, if you know these things, it's, it's hard to, to simply walk around and say, well, we're, we're going to enjoy this. The history is there, and it's confronting you in your face. Yes, in, indeed. And then, and then you think of what uh, history, I think, has proven to be an unworthy compromise that the, that the, the Catholic Church, that the uh, uh, Cardinal Pachale, a Pius XI, should do business with the scum represented by Mussolini and his family and his followers, the scum, just the scum, the dirt of the earth, and uh, they should sit down and sign a concordat with them. And then, of course, within a few years, then the persecutions begin again, the, the brown shirts and the, uh, and the marches, and then you have in effect, the entrance of the revolution, because the revolution sets up these conflicts. And what comes as a result of all, all this, if not the Christian democratic movement, the resistance, the so-called anti-fascist movement in France or in Italy, which is that of the left wing or that of the communists, and the immense victories for them. And it's, uh, the, 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 the church wanted to, uh, in effect, to buy a peace, to, to finally to settle the issue, and it was, but it was only settled for a few years, in effect, and uh, and then then after that, the uh, the march of the revolution just continues. Um, I, I don't you think you can kind of learn the lesson here? Compromise is never really a good idea, and you may think that you can out diplomat uh, the the bad guys, but I don't think that you'll be successful in out diplomating. The history says you you are never successful. What do you have as a Catholic? You have your principles, and, and, and it's these principles that the world is forced, sooner or later, history shows us, to respect. Whereas these, these disgusting figures of history, they come and they go in a few years later, 15 years after the Concordat. His, uh, Mussolini is hanging from his heels with his mistress from a gas station in Milan. Uh, you know, and these are the people with whom the church was going to do business. And Napoleon, too, for that matter. Uh, the, the the original uh, uh, making peace with the revolution at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, I, these these are all things that that have that have uh, led to the rot and have led to in effect to the the dissolution of um, of Christendom. 
Could you say, Your Excellency, that diplomacy is a natural virtue and you're never going to uh, surpass in virtue those uh, forces of organized naturalism? Well, that's an interesting insight. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm highly in favor of diplomacy myself, just for, for, for getting along, especially among, <laughs> among our fellow Catholics who are left. And sometimes one wishes there were a little bit more diplomacy rather than, <laughs> rather than, rather than less. But um, it has to be diplomacy amongst, uh, amongst those who are on the same page, not diplomacy with the enemy, because the enemy will, take, uh, will answer your diplomacy with his duplicity, to stay with our Ds, and uh, that duplicity will, uh, will not out maybe for a few years, or oh, won't take too long though, sooner or later, you'll see that you've been duped by the duplicity of the foe. So um, it, it's just, it, it, it is a means indeed that is used by the organized forces of naturalism, to coin a phrase, uh, in, order to, in order to promote their own, their own program. Uh, and usually they take care of the good, they, they, they feed off of the, the naivete, if not naivete, at least the, the, so we say the extreme and humble goodwill of, of ecclesiastics in promoting their own program. History teaches us that. Uh, ecclesiastics or, or the goyim or whatever phrase you might use. Or that the, yes, I think I think there are other other phrases that indeed one could use. Uh, but uh, no, the the idea of accommodation and accommodationists never works out in the whole. It's the elephant in the room, and uh, there, there's one way to deal with the elephant, and that would be probably to slay the elephant or to get out of the room. But uh, to but 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 you think that you're you're going to feed peanuts to the elephant, and maybe if you're lucky, he won't stomp you to death or stomp you too badly. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid that's uh, that, that that's truly our history. Now, talking about our history, Stephen, we have to talk about the United States. This would maybe be the last um, the last section that we would like to uh, I would like to to see us cover today. The um, the uh, the experience of the Irish Catholic immigrants to America, who getting out of Her Majesty's empire, her uh, Masonic Majesty Queen Victoria, were just so grateful to be in, in a land with sheer physical uh, freedom that they went out of their way in order to uh, to praise. Uh, the Masons in this land, and to show themselves to be friends to the to the whole Masonic way of, of doing things. Uh, Great Britain, first of all, I'm going to say something about Great Britain before we go to uh, Irish America. Great Britain, of course, emancipated the Catholic Church during the 19th century, during the 1830s, as sort of a lull between the, the revolutions. Um, but this was done through no other reason than through the, the Masonic idea of, uh, of liberalism. And there's a very high price that, that, that's paid by Catholics uh, for this, this liberalization. That is to say uh, that, that, it, that it, affects, it affects their own, their own thinking and indeed their own principles. So you have institutionalized indifferentism, Bishop Sanborn says, in the United States of America. And after all of these centuries of being forced to support the Protestant church established by law in England and in Ireland and in Scotland, 
to the Catholic immigrants, this new system looks very good. And instead of thanking God for the, the physical liberty to do that which is right, now somebody gets the, um, the fine idea of, um, of actually making these things into principles and promoting them as principles. And these are, these are the principles which um, the great Leo XIII will condemn as Americanism. And it's the Americans in France, Americanists in France, and the Americanists in, in America, chiefly Irish Americans, such as the Archbishop Ireland, he's, he's the, the leading example of that, uh, who are promoting these ideas, um, is, uh, is not only freedom of religion, uh, but uh, the idea of the, um, the exaltation of personal conscience which would take you right back to Martin Luther and the whole religious revolt of the of, of the 16th century. Um, and then, so now you have a whole chunk of Catholic doctrine which is just not talked about anymore. It's just not taught, which means your idea of history, the, the idea of history that, that your working idea of history is going to be, is going to be lopsided and false and um, out of balance. And that's that's unfortunately that's the um, the legacy of an overly grateful Irish American church in the United States of America uh, to to well the Masonic masters in effect and of course they didn't mind they they were probably delighted that it should be so as the Irish Americans would fall over uh, themselves to prove that yes we're we're Catholics but but we're really Americans you can see. So Jack Kennedy, uh, in his speech to the, um, to the Protestant ministers in, Te- in Dallas, Texas, when he, uh, when he runs for the presidency in 1960, he's in, he's in that fine tradition, as it were. And this is, this is where it comes from, to prove to everybody that, oh, yes, that we can be, we can be, we can be truly, uh, truly Americans here. And um, you have your beliefs, and I have mine, and, and it's primacy of conscience, and the government's not going to promote anything, and everything is gone. Everything's all mixed up and lost. That, this is a root of the rot. This is a very, very important root of the rot, as much from a dogmatic point of view as from a practical point of view, because of practical ecumenism. So, uh, and then the wars, remember, the, the, the wars, World War I and World War II, uh, served uh, to bring Catholics and Protestants together, uh, and promoted a, a, again a practical ecumenism in, in the way of the chaplaincies, and that too that too led led the way to the to, to the spirit of Vatican II. I always think about Henry VIII as one of the founding fathers of America, Your Excellency, and as America's ascendancy has happened in the 20th century, it's only brought this American spirit to the rest of the world. So yeah. Henry VIII takes us come, manages to cross the ocean. And, and establish America's idea because it had been institutionalized in England for centuries before America had been founded. And then America in turn re-gifts the, the weaponized version of Henry VIII onto the rest of the world. Gift, of course, I say in quotations. Um, yes. But again, Americans live with this mentality. And even now, I think some of our listeners you know, who might have not heard you and I speak about these issues before might be asking themselves, wait, is, what's wrong with that idea? Because this is something you, you go to school with, and, and uh, yes. it's mother's milk. Uh, it's just too bad that mother's uh, not Catholic. Yes, and that's and, and the reason for that, and the reason why we were never 
were never warned at all about about the forgive me for saying so organized forces of naturalism and the whole the whole liberal movement the masonic movement in in the world and in the united states and the, the great encyclicals of leo the 13th on freemasonry were never talked about or taught or discussed Rerum novarum, yes, the social teachings to a certain degree, not enough, but to a certain degree. But then Leo the Thirteenth warning us against the foe. No, those things were never talked about um, because it was it was the idea. Oh, well, George 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 Washington was a Mason, and so the Catholics had to go out of their way to canonize him and, and link and say, monstrous men, monstrous. Uh, because they're they're the founding fathers of our, of, our, of our country, and this whole vague civic religion came into existence, and that was a particular project. While Bismarck was doing what he was doing in Germany, that was the project of um, of of Lincoln in the United States to make this nationalism into 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 a form of uh, of civic religion, and the idea of the sanctity of the state, and all and all that that all leads you into the to the great 20th century conflicts. No, you can you, you can you can truly trace the root of the rot here. Uh, and had Pius the Ninth been honored, and obeyed, and listened to, uh, with the warnings that he gave, and indeed Leo the Thirteenth, we would never be in the pickle in which we find ourselves today. Well, Your Excellency, I think that's probably a good place for us to to finish this uh, installation of. Of root of the rot, we are we're getting dangerously close to our our modern day. So our listeners should be forewarned that this this show, um, unlike eternity, will not go on forever. And we should be wrapping up. Uh, I suppose we can give an outline of where we're going, Your Excellency. Obviously, we're headed for World War One, followed by the inter the interim between the wars world war ii and uh, i suppose we could probably cover a lot of what's happened since world war ii within another episode so we've only got a few more episodes ahead we'll want to talk of course about about the modernist movement uh and and, uh, and the efforts of saint Pius x to crush modernism he said they should be crushed with the fists and then, then, as you say, about, about the wars and the great progress that was made during the wars and in the era between the two world wars for the, for the promotion of the, of, the, of, the ideal, of the ideals of the revolution. But if our listeners try to keep in mind uh, the great silence, the echoing silence, and then at the same time the false teaching on the part of many American bishops in the 19th century, in the 19th century, that will give that will give them some explanation as to, well, how could the changes have happened? Where where on earth did this come from? Uh, so, in effect, we're talking now. Uh, one of the great goals of uh, we haven't introduced this term yet, but this is what we'll talk about next time: the secularization of society. Their goal is to reduce man and the interests of society to something which is purely natural, money, pleasure, goods, prestige, power, and all the rest of it. Uh, the revolution that will, will, now, will now move into a different phase. They, having done so very much to exalt the state, that's a very important concept, to the, the, the power of the state, the all-powerful state, uh, and to, and to um, attack and to weaken the family, uh, education, the church, Class distinctions, aristocracy—all those things have gone by the by, by the wayside now, and there's no one left 
to stand in the face of the all-powerful state. So you see the, the, the movement of secularization and where, where it will be leading to. And so we'll look at some of these things next time. Thank you for all that, Your Excellency. Uh, for those of you um, listening, we want to remind you that you've been listening to Root of the Rot on the Restoration Radio Network. Today we've been talking about the various European countries that were involved in, in the revolutions in this time period, specifically France, Italy, Germany. Obviously, there were problems in Austria and Poland and other countries, but uh, we can't uh, spend the entire episode going into that, but we would encourage you to, to read more on that. Or if you had further clarifying questions for His Excellency or myself, you can always remember right to rootoftherot at truerestoration.org, and, and we'll clarify any of those questions in the next episode. Your Excellency, thanks as always for joining us. It's my pleasure. I look forward to the next one. Thank you, Stephen. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.